You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you feeling today? Good, good. Uh, Yeah, we're going to do a, a complex kind of issue today and I really hope we do it justice because these are these are issues that so many I think both of us have noticed a real uptick in the yeah. amount of, of people contacting us exactly about this issue yeah and so we said right let's let's grasp this particularly difficult um thorny issue so do you yes. want to explain what we're about sure. today? yeah so we're talking about families who have a child questioning their gender who started out with the affirmation protocol. These are people who maybe have gone to their GP or a child psychologist and referred to a gender clinic and were told in um, pretty certain terms that affirming is the best way to support this child. So these families might have changed the child's name and pronouns. They might have even started them on puberty blockers. And after some time, um, they might have wondered if this was the best approach. So I know I have been getting way more inquiries from families in this boat. And I think it's very terrifying when they start to go online and do some additional research and see that uh, there are other ways to think about this. And I don't know if this is your experience, but I think a very common scenario that I've seen is we were promised that affirming would calm things down and there were pre-existing mental health issues. So we did it with a lot of faith in this process. And what we have seen is that things have only escalated. In some ways, maybe our child is doing better in some regards, but overall, we actually don't see that this is really helping our child. And so I started doing some research and realized oh my God, we might have made a mistake. And I have to say, probably the most frightening sentence a parent can make about their child is, oh my God, we've made a mistake. It is, it literally makes my blood stop running for a second of that concept, you know, of I think I've got it wrong. I I think I've done it wrong. And so it's incredibly brave to say it, because very, very often, especially perhaps in parenting where it feels so, such high stakes, it almost feels like we're not allowed to make big mistakes. We can make loads of little mistakes, but that's not really allowed. But to, to admit that you've made a mistake and to seek alternative kind of concepts is really brave. It's really brave and really, really difficult. And so when I get those emails and I am getting more and more of them and they're always complicated, it's like, well, this happened and then that happened. And like you say, now we're some years into all this. I cannot but come to the conclusion that things aren't going well. And I'm there, I think, with my knowledge of, of, of psychology and my knowledge of kind of of how gender works and also how mental health issues work. I can see the kind of the golden thread that's happened 
and I can see that the affirmation hasn't really as a concept. It's 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 a shallow approach. It feels like a band aid for 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 me anyway. And it can feel like, yeah, it, it might make them happy, it might seem like it makes them happy for some time. But when lots of other issues uh, erupt as a result of this, you can think, yeah, I, I it was a poison chalice in a way. I solved issue A and I brought in seven more issues. And this has not been good for the, the household, for the child, for the parents, and more than anything for the, the dynamic between the parent and the child. That, that I think, suffers the most because the, par- the child has, I believe, too much responsibility and too much power within the household. And the parents are looking to the child saying, is this right? Is this right? Are we right? So there's so many issues with this. I think this is going to be uh, difficult difficult for some parents to listen to, but I think it's really brave if you do think that maybe lurking behind your thoughts is I think we've got it wrong I, I'd encourage you to listen because mm-hmm. you know it's it could be a real gift to row back and what I have found really interesting is that as I've met more and more families who did go down this affirmation approach um, contrary to how they're sometimes portrayed in social media or online these are parents who on the surface are trying to be affirmative, but when you really get to talk to them deep down inside, many of them don't fully buy it. And they're going along with the narrative and the, the protocol because they're, they're kind of like in a situation where I'm going to take a bit of a gamble here. Maybe my kid's been really struggling with a lot of mental health issues. We've tried antidepressants. We've tried switching schools. We've tried this. We've tried that. Nothing else has worked okay, our doctors are telling us this is the key. I'm going to try it. But deep down in my heart, I don't know about this. And so we don't, I mean, I haven't really talked to parents who were really zealots about affirming. Of course, those parents are probably going to contact me, but I would suspect there are lots of families all over the place doing this affirmation thing, but behind closed doors when their kid's asleep, I bet they talk to each other and go, God, I don't know about this. Yeah. And I think this is key. I think I've, I find with the parents I meet, it's it's a lack of confidence in their own opinion and their own viewpoint as opposed to a zealotry. They're not going rah, 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 this is all great. They're thinking uh, the doctor, who's apparently very well credentialed, and seems to have great qualifications. He seems certain. And who am I to question this doctor? And so uh, I'll go with it. Um, th- apparently, this is the right way to go. And it certainly feels, and this is what's perhaps so pernicious about this, it feels like a positive thing to do because it says affirmation and it makes them smile in the moment. So it feels very like, okay, well, I'm certainly not going against a grain here. I'm just nodding along. So that that feels nice. And then um, apparently this very qualified doctor is telling me I'm doing the best thing I could for the child. And so they get, I feel, painted into a corner. And then to be told that they're I think they're treated so badly online. I think they're so disrespected. It's like I've met too many of them. These are loving, engaged parents Mm -hmm. who want to do the right thing for their children. And they have been. And I just I only yesterday, you know, somebody I knew said something in real life. Actually, it was my husband. And I said, you're Mm -hmm. wrong. I said, you're wrong. These these parents are really loving. They're really engaged and they're being misdirected by people 
who they should trust. You have a child with a problem and you bring them to the doctor and the doctor should steer you right. That is how society has been working for many, many years. And so they have been steered wrong, I would argue. And, you know, it it takes a certain level of confidence and um, strength to go against a doctor's orders. It takes a lot. And it's not just the doctor, you know. Mm. I mean, these are parents who are... I remember hearing from a family who was so um, tired of being accused of transphobia, you know, that they just said, oh, I have to prove people wrong. I'm not transphobic. Uh. I'm not hateful towards my child. So the whole narrative has been warped in such a way that for some families, it feels like there's no choice. And that's very hard. And I think it's only when they realize that actually there are thousands of loving, engaged parents who do question this narrative And then they find themselves kind of falling in with the support groups or reading up a little bit more. And that might be the point at which they contact somebody like me or someone like you and and say, here's where we're at. Here's what we've done. And I'm I'm afraid that this was not the right decision or I'd like to slow things down. Yeah. And they often use the phrase, can we roll back a little bit on this? This is the phrase I hear always. How could we roll back? Is it possible to roll back? And Mm -hmm. it always depends on the context. And it's always possible to roll back on everything. But just to point out, you are right. It's not just the doctors, because generally the school, society, the well-meaning adults, everybody will have effectively come together almost like a, a wall around the family to say this is the way to go. And so the family have have yielded to this in their what they think is the best interests of the child. And they often started resistant. And within maybe months, maybe a year, they finally said, OK, affirmation is the way to go. And then mm-hmm. they affirm fully. And often, almost, they remind me of, you know, the horse and animal farm. And every time there was a problem, the horse and animal farm said, I must work harder. I must work harder. And, you know, they ju- he just kept on working harder, not realising that it wasn't. It was the odds were stacked against him. And these parents, they think, I must affirm more fully. I must be even more affirming. I must yield further. I must yield further. And it's like, no, that you're going deeper and deeper into it. And it's not actually the fundamental solution. Yeah. And what really makes me very sad for these parents and empathic towards them is that there's this weird superficial narrative that like, well, the reason the child's upset is because you messed up on the pronoun that one day. Or, well, you know, your child doesn't feel like you really believe their gender. And that's the problem. And when I speak with these families, what I realize is the smoke screen of gender makes it really hard to see what's really going on. And oftentimes there are family dynamics and attachment dynamics and parenting issues that they could improve on, but it's not really about the gender. These kids are pushing against boundaries. And what I often see is parents will say, you know, the one time that I told my kid, actually, honey, no, we're not going to do that. They were surprised that the kid actually seemed to perk up, like the mood got better. So I think sometimes in families like this, like you said earlier, the child is trying to find where's the edge of my parents' limits. And they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And actually, kids and teens need to have a kind of a definitive boundary where the parent says, honey, I love you. I get that this is important, but no, we're not going to do that. It's not safe or it's not healthy. And that actually creates a kind of 
um, container for the child to be able to test out those boundaries. And that's sometimes missing in these families. So I think there are usually pre-existing dynamics between parent and child where the child's trying to figure out where the edge is. Um, and it all gets clouded by gender and then everything gets focused on that. And I feel like the escalation that I often see is really remarkable. So for example, parents will say, you know, I was, I thought that affirming the name and pronouns would take down the intensity. Let's say there's been a kid who's really been having a hard time, very volatile, very moody, very upset, maybe having suicidal thoughts. And okay, we'll give you the pronouns that should pacify things. But the kid just moves on to the next level. Okay, well, now I need the puberty blockers. I have to have them. And so there's an escalation to me, which indicates kids are looking for the edge. They're looking for the boundary. I think you're right. I think you're dead right. I, I was a kid. I had a kind of an unusual childhood and I did have gender issues. So I'm trying to think really hard. What, what is this relevant to it? But anyway, I definitely felt like I was I was making the rules and I was doing I, I there was a lack of boundaries, definitely. And I do remember feeling you had a very short term feeling of power and satisfaction that you were running the show. That was no doubt that was, that was quite tangible. But at the same time, um, a, 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 a continuous dissatisfaction, a, a kind of a chronic anger at everybody like this is all crap you you know what I mean and a kind of it reminds me of the kind of 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 the the kind of dissatisfaction of the tyrant it's this kind of it's very kind of it's very cranky and it's very kind of everybody's wrong everybody's wrong and it's, it's not a nice place to be and I was there I was I was in it and I knew it and I knew I was behaving badly and it just made me annoyed that they were such Basically, um, they were so weak, allowing me to run rough. rough, Yeah, allowing me to run roughshod over them. They were just weak. And that just made me more annoyed because why? I was an immature kid. You know what I mean? Who wasn't able to handle the power that was bestowed upon me as such. Now, I'm not sure was mine necessarily to do with gender, but it does feel a little bit uncanny that I did have gender issues and I was that child. So it it does feel... um, is it maybe now I'm trying to push myself a little bit further, the very, very unusualness of I don't feel like a girl, I feel like a boy, that immediately the adults in the room feel at sea of this is such a yes. weird. Yeah, we're in no man's land now because this is not territory I'm used to. Yeah. And so I'm kind of looking towards the child for a steer here and the child can't actually take it. They, they can't take the power. Yeah, I often say that if we if we take gender out of it, let's use different scenarios to explore what's going on. And that can help clarify things because you you said it, the, the exotic nature of like, I feel like I'm a different person in the wrong body that can throw everybody off because it sounds so like such an anomaly that it must need some special kind of response. But if you imagine, let's say an 11 year old um you discover that your 11-year-old child is starting to kind of sneak away from class and do drugs behind the bleacher, I think most parents would instinctively know this is an area that we need to lean in with structure. We need to set some boundaries. 
But if your kid is sneaking off and putting a packer in her pants and using the boys' restroom, that kind of changes the flavor of what's going on. And people can get very confused about, okay, well, what's age appropriate? What is appropriate for my child to be exploring at this stage? And for some reason, well, for lots of reasons, gender has become something that seems to have no age limits, no boundaries. Everyone can explore their gender. Babies can explore their gender. And it's a, it's, it takes it out of the realm of rationale because with any other age-inappropriate thing, parents know we need to set boundaries. Yes. And when you have decided, no, you are setting the boundaries because you've got an exotic kind of condition that knows no understanding unless you suffer it, um, you've given away your parental authority, you've given away your own kind of input into the situation and you've landed it on the shoulders of sometimes a very young child and then um, it's supported by by many people around them from doctors to teachers to others. And so if we were to kind of go into the practicalities, there's many different ways to roll back and I suppose many Many, many people ask, how do you roll back on names and pronouns? And mm. for myself, I start off by saying, well, I'd separate names and pronouns. And I would also, depending on the context, I'm interested to know how you answer this. But in, depending on the context, I often say um, genuineness is the road ahead. Authentic, authentic kind of conversations. Don't say the not truth. If you, if you can't say the truth, do, don't say a lie. Because I find many times when I actually penetrate what's going on with the parents that they've actually been living a lie and they mm-hmm. haven't really admitted it to themselves until I start asking questions. And it kind of emerges that actually, no, I, I haven't believed in this for ages and I've been nodding along, losing myself in the process as a parent, losing my entire perspective of everything. And I don't believe anything now, but they don't know it. So yeah. there's a real sham going on in the household now. There's a charade going on. Yeah. Do you not, your face looked funny when I said names and pronouns. Do you not separate them? I see them as totally separate. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, I think nicknames, well, what I'm feeling is that there are so many different contexts that I, I feel like we almost have to drill down into slightly yeah. more specifics. So for example, if a parent has socially transitioned their four-year-old, the baby, a baby, and the kid is now six, seven, eight, and they're rethinking things. I think that would look a little, I mean, that would look really different from a parent with a 15-year-old who's on puberty blockers and is kind of nervous about the next step. So let's almost, let's start hmm. with chronology. Okay. Let's start with the little ones. Are, are you seeing this a lot? And I am, and I'm actually very comfortable yeah. with this because they come okay. to me because they know I've had that experience. As and, a kid, uh, when you were yeah, little. And because yeah. I was such an extreme, I had, you know, I, I had gender issues for anybody who's left in this world who doesn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted Everyone to knows. <laughs> I wanted to be a little boy and um, I wanted to be a big boy too. Um, yeah. And so because I'm so comfortable and because I know how sure of myself, how cocky I was, how filled with power I was, how uh, I knew I was driving the room. I knew I was I was impressing the the adults with my slightly strange take on life. Um, because of all that, you won't hear me kind of, I'm not intimidated at all by their position. And that really kind of draws them in because they're like, okay, right. Kind of, I didn't believe 
people like you really existed, Stella, because you seem completely cool now. And I'm like, I am. I'm not, I'm, mm. I, I'm not, I have no pretense here. I've just got what happened to me. But yeah, I do. And I think actually, honestly, I think it's really under age 10, you have an extraordinary level of power that you can use as a parent. It might be, you might be wide-eyed as a parent listening to this, but I'm really saying you have so much power over your child. And it's only in the later years that you lose a lot of your power and you lose a lot of your ability to to keep parental authority. I think under, under, before puberty, I think you can really kind of have a real, you go, in my world, you go quiet, you assess the situation, you book session, <laughs> you, you go to kind of a few GDSN meetings, you kind of go on the platforms, contact Genspec to find out the different supports. There's loads of them. And then you decide how you're going to go at it. You make your plan. You wait. Don't make a plan quickly. Don't listen to this episode and charge off. Wait, do your homework, take your time, almost like the way you would approach losing four stone. You'd say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start at this date and I'm going to follow through and it's going to have Mm -hmm. commitment and I'm going to have a lot of support as I do this. And I'm going to have a kind of almost a diary um, or a journal, as you might say, to kind of monitor the progress or else I will feel too kind of disheartened too quickly. And you go in very strong when you've got yourself able and realize this takes the, the strength of losing four stone. It takes a lot of commitment. Yeah. And I'm, I'm imagining parents listening. And many of these parents are, they parent with a type of style that's somewhat egalitarian, right? And they want their child to be able to express him or herself and have their voice heard and be able to be themselves, And they might be thinking, gosh, you know, I don't want to just use my parenting power. I don't want to, you know, authority, submission, child, you know, like I don't want to use those things. So what's coming to mind for me is I would recommend listening to the social transition episode of this podcast that we did. And what I would say to parents in that position is what's really important to remember is that your child really needs your loving guidance to keep them safe. And showing interest in your child and engagement with your child and caring about your child and looking out for their safety is the way you help a child to feel safe. We kind of have this weird idea, I think, that's come from some type of psychological perspectives that in order for children to thrive... They have to be listened to and their lead has to be followed all the time. But what the data shows us is that authoritative parenting, which shows a lot of warmth and engagement and compassion paired with really high expectations, that's the key to helping children be confident, resilient, independent, creative, and all the things people want from their children. So I think if parents can ground themselves in that knowledge, that actually in order to help my child be their best, I have to have a combination of warmth and structure, that can give you a framework so that if you have to set a boundary and your child gets a little bit upset, you don't get derailed by that and think, oh no, I've harmed my child. You think, oh no, my child's upset and I still did the right thing. This will blow over. We have a strong enough attachment. My child being somewhat upset and slamming the door 
and then coming down for dinner a few hours later and giving me a hug, things are still on the right track. Yeah. Um, Diane Baumer, I think in the 60s, did a kind of an analysis of parenting styles. And it's a really handy one for anybody who's thinking of rowing back and thinking, I need to get my parental authority to read up about the four parental, main parental styles. It's a really good way of just checking in. I always think we all know what the authoritative parent is. They have love and structure. They're warm, they're responsive and they're lovely. And we all are that. And then we fall into one of the other three styles, which I'll say in a minute. Um, when we're weak, when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, you know, when we fall, mm. we slip into them and we all have our weakness. And I would, for example, slip into the indulgent permissive when I'm feeling weak and stressed. And yes, you can have your chocolate. Yes, you can watch the film. Yes, yes, whatever. <laughs> Just, and, you know, <laughs> let's my, my, often your partner might have a, an authoritarian, often the authoritarians and the indulgents work like they marry each other. So it's quite classic. My husband would be, no, you can't do anything. no. <laughs> So it's completely Anything. schizophrenic, not at all what I'd recommend. But if you know your weakness, if you know that you're, for example, a, a, a people like myself who can slip into the indulgent permissive parenting when they're feeling weak, be aware of that. Because if you're going to try and do something like rowing back, you're probably afraid of your children's fears, ch- afraid of your children's tears, afraid of your children's distress and will do almost do anything to make them feel better. And you're literally in a state of kind of slight panic when they get unhappy, when they get unhappy. And what Diane Baumrind has shown with these parental styles, that those permissive parents tend to have children who become chronically unhappy, who aren't able to handle this distress of, yes, you're distressed and it will blow over. What you said is right. It will blow over. And it's only by experiencing distress and then feeling better an hour later is that you learn not to take your distress so seriously. And they have to learn that in childhood. So it's our job as the kind of indulgent, permissive parents not to be too frightened of our children's distress. And the other, just so we go through them, the other two styles is the authoritarian, which is the good one. The authoritative, authoritative no, is the authoritative, good one. authoritative, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and then authoritarian is my, my husband, the strict one, which is very kind of, you'll do it my way, you know what I mean? And it's very... No uh, talking about why, no talking, just my way or the no. highway. Mm-hmm. And that can do, bring in a lot of uh, toxic kind of underground behaviour, a lot of slyness, a lot of secrecy, a lot of... And often children who don't have a lot of strength of core because they've been kind of shouted over for so long. Then you've got the indulgent permissive like myself, where uh, those children haven't learned to experience distress in the shallow waters. And they, they, they really, it doesn't do them any favours. They need to experience distress so that they can handle it when life throws them those rocks. And then the last style would be the neglectful, disengaged. Very often these days disengaged because they work too hard or disengaged because they're on social media or because maybe alcohol or mental health issues. And very often with those parents, you will find gender walks into the family And you've got, let's say, a disengaged parent who works very hard. I can't handle this. This is too complicated. I can't deal. Just bring her to the doctor. I I can't deal with that. Do you know what I mean? And that Mm -hmm. would be the classic disengaged. While the indulgent would be, what do you want me to do? I'll do anything. Just what, what, we'll go to California. Let's go now. I'll do anything to stop you crying. While the authoritarian is like, we're going to do it my way. I've decided this is the way and that's the way we'll do it. And there'll be no kind of argument and it's very hard parenting is really 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 hard and we get it wrong 90% of the time 
<laughs> but <laughs> sadly, and you know, we really do. We get it wrong so often. Well, I do anyway. And I just think all we can do is try and do our best within it. And if society is working well, you know, our love will come through. Our love will come yeah. through. It'll be it'll be good enough. And when we've been steered wrong, that you know, the, the best gift we could give is to think I've got a little bit wrong. I'm going to readjust the railroad tracks. And it's going to take a lot of effort and I need to be very kind to myself as I do. But yeah, to go back, way back <laughs> to where you were saying the younger children. Yeah. Wh- what is your take with them? Yeah, I think um, I've talked with some families in this situation. And I think the first thing to do is remember that there are influences on your child. Let's say your child is attending a gender clinic for regular therapy sessions and you're trying to roll back, you have to think first about what are the influences on my child that are counterproductive to what our family goals are. And you have to first think about mitigating those. And stay connected, loving, don't make any sudden moves. I like how you said, go quiet and strategize, right? Don't do anything volatile. But I think it's um, with the young kids, it's okay to, for example, start pulling back from the gender clinic and maybe reading books together about gender nonconformity. And you might say, you know, honey, this is kind of like you too, don't you think? You know, if you want to take a gentle approach and you can start introducing different ways to think about things. And I I always tell parents, remember, you know, it's still your job to kind of set the pace. And it's also completely okay um, to say at some point, you know, I think it's really important to accept our bodies for how they are. And we've been doing this for X amount of years. Um, But I think it could also be very confusing to take on a different kind of identity. And I think the thing is that's hard is like you may not get full buy-in from your child because your child's too young to really understand. You know, we've talked about sex constancy, this kind of um, cognitive ability to understand that sex is constant and that doesn't really develop between until they're between five and seven. So, you know, there's a level of kind of leadership that you have to take in setting the tone because your child may not fully get it. Um, But I think there are ways to introduce different perspectives and different ways that you might take the lead, but it's still the parent's job to take the lead in, in a gentle, loving way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think to come at it around gender is probably maybe not the best for the younger children. Around body acceptance is a lovely idea. Rachel yeah. Rooney did a, wrote a great book called My Body Is Me. And I think self-acceptance, body acceptance, working with what you have, you can get a lot of books and films around working with what you have. And you could, you know, you could watch films who, with people who've been born with difficult bodies, with complicated, challenging needs, and just talk about how they came around to who they were rather than trying to be somebody different. Nothing to do with gender, just to do with self-acceptance and working with what you have as a concept. Another one that I've seen work with children of that age is um, not liking the complicated nature of the secrecy of half the people know and half the people don't know. And it's causing more complications and actually more conversations and more worry than if you just were a non-conforming kid. 
that mm-hmm. actually that, that that would be easier because it would be got over a lot quicker rather than half people know, half don't. I have to take them aside and tell them. And yeah. by the time they're eight or nine, that that complicated nature has really started to land in on them. And I find they're not they're finding it difficult. Now, some sometimes they've been kind of learned to read that through a banner of this is transphobia as opposed to this is complex, needless issues that maybe I didn't need to bring in. Mm-hmm. to my life so I think that would be a good way to kind of go at it towards kind of body acceptance self-acceptance working with what you have I think that there are the ways we hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast we work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for sponsoring us Rhyme or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. Now, back to the show. And I think there's a being honest about who you are, kind of like what you said with the big secret. It can be a real burden to have this big secret that you constantly have to navigate and hide around. And so that could be valuable. And another thing I'll say for this age group is, you know, when they're under the age of 10 or 11, you have puberty coming around the corner. And so sometimes families can make some headway by saying, you know, there are going to be some really important changes happening in your body. And it's really hard to pretend that those aren't real. Those are real things that happen to people who are little boys or people who are little girls. And we need to start talking about that. And that could be um, a kind of avenue to start taking a different approach that's more based on the child's biology. And, I mean, again, if this is a child this young... I would suspect they might be a little bit different from the ROGD kid in that their gender nonconformity or their desire to be the other gender maybe emerged more organically rather than, oh, my friends told me about trans and now I want to be trans. So in these cases, it's really important to honor any natural gender nonconformity the child has and not to squash that in the process of helping them accept their body, which it's a complicated thing to navigate. But to hold both is really important. I have noticed for parents who have been kind of immersed in, in the kind of very pro-affirmative world that the children have an over-the-top emphasis on puberty is coming. And it's 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 really quite intense. And it, it's like they've been taught about puberty a little bit young and in a very scarifying way. And it's it's not great. Uh, it hasn't been a, a really good introduction to the fact that they are going to grow up in, in an age appropriate way. Um, so maybe a relook at listen. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be the scariest thing in the whole world. You can handle it. Let's let's just make sure that we don't over over play this too much into this kind of oh the you know the the puberty is coming and it's going to be so awful. There's a new type of child who's arrived as well <laughs> in a field of many new types. Um, um, Ian Hacking would be delighted with this making up people kind of scenario. And this is the child who had gender issues as a child, naturally and organically. And then around about 10 or so found the internet and kind of got really into this kind of trans world. And it, it it's kind of like they, they never had that opportunity 
before. And so it's like they turned almost ROGD because they became very computer accessed and they became very computer oriented and very kind of social justice warrior before they even could really understand the concepts. They're a particularly difficult kind of scenario because it has been there since uh, a very young age. And I would argue a lot of them probably would have grown out of it had they not had early access to YouTube, really. Yeah, that's such a good point. So this is a kind of like late emergence ROGD with early gender questions or gender Just as complicated as you can get. (laughs) And the longest title of a condition ever. We need Lisa Littman to come on with a phrase. (laughs) Okay, so then let's go back to what you said about names and pronouns. Oh, yeah. You said you separate them. I do. What do you mean? Because I think there's a very big difference between names and pronouns. And I I think that parents could look at pronouns and I think that it... It, it arguably and maybe parents could consider thinking like this if they were to sit down their child when they were ready and they'd strategized and they decided that this was a good approach and an option would be to sit the child down and say the pronoun thing is kind of not sitting well with us because it feels fake it's creating a barrier between us it feel I feel like I'm saying one thing when I mean another I'm watching my speech when I want to be at my most comfortable with you because you're the person I love most in the world I just want to be like wear my old t-shirt and with my kid and we're just having you know shooting the breeze not this consciousness of almost like I'm I'm on the radio have I got my language right if you follow me and so because of that I don't feel I can continue with the pronouns request because I feel it's created a barrier and a tension and I don't think it's really working either because it's sitting very badly with me I'm the parent I did you know for example give birth to you or I was there when you were born it's it's I have a special place in your life. Your friends can do what your friends wish. I am. You only have us as parents. And so we're going to kind of use our special position to make our, our special choices because we think that's good enough. The names I see as a different conversation because I see the names as, well, names come and go. Nicknames come and go. Sometimes people don't like their name and sometimes you can change their name to letters. Sometimes you can change their name to a kind of uh, a neutral name that we all agree on. Sometimes you can play around with names. I think there's a lot of room for Mm -hmm. compromise with the names. While I think the pronouns actually makes parents feel like they're going a bit mad. Yeah. And that's why I say separate, separate conversations, separate those two issues because they're there are two different conversations could be had there. I love that framing. That's really helpful. And that kind of addresses the the kind of authenticity and realness that we talked about earlier. You know, kids who have been early affirmed, their parents usually feel like they're doing a lot of pretending. And so bringing some of that authenticity and that realness into the relationship can do a surprising amount of help and healing and impact. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What about, let's, let's move um, forward a little bit. We talked about really young kids and how to deal with that. What about kids who are like young teens who might have been um, affirmed and socially transitioned and the parents are wanting to back out there? Let's say it's like a 12 year old or 13 year old. 
Your this, face. If yeah, you guys can see Stella's harder. face, this is a harder one. <laughs> much trickier. Really, really much. It requires a lot more skill and finesse and a lot more focus and a lot more thought about how does this child, where is this child at? Is this socially justice? Is this a, there's a lot of social justice here. Is there a lot of victim identity going on here? Is the child in deep distress about something else and need a lot of help around that? What is actually going on here so that we can properly address it? Because, for example, if the child, as is often the case, is in deep distress and it is a side issue and it's not gender and gender is the proposed issue, but actually the deep issue. And the parents can often see what it is, you know, and it could be, you know, it could be because they're on the spectrum. It could be loneliness, isolation, insecurity. And if it is something else, that's where I think I would land for a lot of a lot of uh, conversations between the parent and child. It's like, I think we've been over focusing on gender and I think we could do better by focusing on the isolation that you seem to be experiencing. And can we give a bit more room to this and can we go this way for a little while, almost as an experiment to see if this kind of lifts the situation a bit. So you're kind of going mm -hmm. at it sideways as opposed to listen, let's throw the dead dog on the table. I don't buy any of this. Mm. That can create war that can last for, for years. Now, honestly, I'll have to be honest. Some parents have said, one day I lost it and that was the day actually there was some sort of breakthrough. Yes. Do you know what I mean? So there's some sort of, there's yes. something about the, the genuineness of, listen, I'm coming in straight. I love you and this is the straight. Sometimes that can be very powerful. So I, I'm reluctant to not advise that. Yeah. But... It's it can go wrong when parents tell me, you know, oh, well, I one time I yelled at my kid and it was such a horrible mistake. I wish I hadn't. You know, I say it's not the worst thing in the world to have a temporary moment where you really let your true feelings out. As long as there's some kind of uh, reconciliation, that's a normal part of parent child relationships. Yeah. And sometimes the being honest actually breaks something out. It's like if the family's under a kind of pressure cooker, sometimes a moment where mom's like, you know what? I just don't buy it. Boom. The valve is open and psh, the pressure comes out because the kids can sometimes feel it. Yeah. You know, so I don't think it's the worst thing ever. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting you verbally harass or abuse children. I, obviously, I'm saying in a moment, if you say what you really think about the gender presentation, that can be an opportunity to actually move the conversation forward. And, you know, I remember Lisa Marciano, I always remember that she said the magic is in the repair. And I think there's huge opportunities in the repair. When you've when you've said your truth, but you know you could you could for anybody who feels bad for having lost it, let's say, I would say to them is is it worse to to lose it and be completely truthful versus being fake and effectively lying for two full years, which which is actually worse because continuously nodding along in a fake way. Now, genuinely, the parents slip into it. They started off believing. And over time, they, they educated themselves and realized, I don't believe it. And I don't know how to tell them I've changed religion, that I, I, I'm not a believer in all this, that like the evidence has just stacked up and stacked up. And, and it's like when I don't know if you've ever um, I was born a Catholic over the years, I came to the conclusion that I didn't believe in God or any of it. And it took years 
And that's how mm-hmm. it often feels when the parents describe their arc, that it wasn't one moment, it was many, many moments. But now they've been living effectively a fake life with their child and the child doesn't know it. And then they come to us going, how do I tell them it's effectively become a massive secret? I'm pretending that I'm all for something that I, I haven't been for for 18 months. Yeah, I always ask parents, does your child know what you really think? Really good question. They have to know. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that telling your child what you really think is going to create some light bulb moment where they're going to get on board with you. But to try and manage this as a parent without any kind of opposing forces is where you run into trouble. And I think that's why we talked earlier about authority Because some parents are trying to side with the child in every possible way and simultaneously hope that the child finds their way out of it. But without that tension, there is nothing to kind of create a counterbalancing force. And I think this is really important for parents to understand. It's it's part of the parent-child dynamic to have tension around things that the child may want that maybe the parent doesn't feel as healthy. There's no way to avoid having some tension with your child. And that's healthy and appropriate. Mm. And not easy to live through and creates a difficult day when you say no. And it's so much easier to say yes, yes, yes. But in the long run, it isn't. But I do think, you know, authority doesn't come naturally to some people. Some people are more tentative. They're not inclined towards authority. And that makes parenting the, the, the distressed child that little bit harder. And that's where I could think like, you know, so many parents spend so many hours teaching themselves everything about gender. And honestly, they know so much about gender. And I think to myself, and I say it, um, perhaps one could do more help for, for your family by learning about holding authority, by learning about, you know, finding your strong voice, by learning to handle yourself when your child is distressed by learning to handle conflict and maybe if you spent even a fraction of that time where you're learning about gender learning about handling conflict in your life and not yielding as soon as there's the slightest issue it's it's a kind of a displacement activity reading about gender when you should be reading about dealing with conflict oh my god Stella you're Mm -hmm. I think you're so right because what I often hear from parents is you know, when my daughter says this to me, I just, I just lose it. I just cry or I just get so angry that I can't see straight. And it's so difficult to feel confident parenting when you simultaneously feel like your emotions are a hurricane inside of you. And I really feel for those parents because like you said, it's not for a lack of investment. They work so hard to learn about gender and get involved and, and, read every parenting book on the planet. But in the moment, it can be so challenging to face your child when you're not able to kind of stay grounded in your sense of confidence and authority. So I think that's really, really good advice. Yeah. And, and hard. hard to very, do. very hard. Very hard. You know, I've, I've worked with families who maybe the, the parents in therapy and the mom's like, you know, having my own therapist has really, yeah. really helped me because this is a therapist who also is a parenting expert or something. And so to have that kind of support, like you said earlier, if you're going to lose weight, you need a lot of support from people around you. Same thing here. If you're working on your sense of 
parental authority and confidence, you need support, you need people who will be there for you who understand. And, you know, thinking about this scenario with the 12 or 13 year old, one thing that I think is very important here is, you know, people who are detransitioners, essentially what they have been through is they had, you know, certain information and they used that information to make some decisions. And then through both their experience and perhaps developing new information, they changed their minds. That's a very important skill and ability that helps us to be functional humans, to change our minds. So if you're trying to model that for your child, and hopefully if your child at some point comes to decide that being trans or transition isn't the best way for them, you can model that too. So if you're a family who has affirmed, you can also sit your child down and say, you know, when we first started down this gender pathway, this is the information we had, and we did our best with what we thought was healthy and would help you. But it's been two years, and we've observed, I like observations, you know, ever since changing your pronouns, here are things that have gone well, but also here are things that have gotten worse. And based on some new information and seeing what's actually happened, we think it's important to take a different approach. So like what you said earlier, we've been focused completely on gender and we've neglected the fact that you're a whole person. And we're taking a different approach because we don't, with the new information we have, we don't think that was the best path forward. Yeah. And that's okay to change your mind. And that it, it is hard. I have noticed with the parents of desisters that they are notably parents who have a lot of authority. I, I have noticed that as a common theme. And, you, you know, that can that can easily get um, um, kind of ignored. And we can say, oh, well, they're very authoritative. They're lucky. And it's like, oh, no, you can actually learn that. You can kind of develop that within you. It does take time, but it, it, it's such a gift to yourself because you're developing your authority in in the larger sense. I know Lisa, I have to mention her again, Lisa Martiano's book, Motherhood. She talks about all the lessons that, you know, mothering or parenting brings to us. And one of them is that we do find our strong voice. But I do think that it can be incredibly difficult. And I know Sasha and myself, we both have experienced this feeling of parents contacting us where they're the only person who's decided that it's 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 a change that they don't agree so maybe maybe for example the father is still very affirmative and even though admits that things aren't going well they they think it's because of other reasons and it's not because that perhaps the affirmative approach hasn't been the best strategy for this child and so the the mother for example this is i've i've come across this scenario a few times the mother can feel like a voice in the wilderness she might be the only person in the entire household who's actually thinking no um this this isn't working and i don't know how to tell anybody i feel like i'm living a lie with everybody here and if i if i bring this up there's going to be war and I don't know how to do it. So I go off into my secret meetings and I talk about it. And that, that like in fairness, that's so hard to be the only voice that actually disagrees with the way things are going. And very often I would argue it's the most engaged parent who is that lone voice. And that is, that's a mountain, not, not insurmountable, 
but would certainly take, for me, in my world, I believe, a strong decision around the long lines of, could you do a house swap? Could you go off for Christmas for a month or two? Could you change geographical region for a little while with your child? Could you go somewhere? Maybe, you know, go and kind of do some sort of kind of interesting kind of, you know, once in a lifetime visit to somewhere like Africa or Kathmandu or, you know what I mean, somewhere completely exotic and different and nothing to do with gender and nothing to do with your life because it has to be that exotic for such a change to kind of kind of occur. Yeah, and this really speaks to, with families who have affirmed, it really does create this huge... Uh, almost like a gravitational pull around gender. All of a sudden, everything is about the gender. And if you're going to do the affirmation, you have to be telling the school and using the pronouns. And there's so much. And then there's the regular visits at the clinic. So like, it kind of becomes this vortex where everything is around gender. And part of the way you might slow things down is by expanding out and, um, taking a huge trip like that or having some kind of a life-changing experience, it offers a new perspective. It broadens the young person's sense of like, well, what makes me who I am? How do I find identity? And when it comes to searching for identity, we've gotten a really narrow and and distorted view of it through the lens of gender. Um, There are so many ways that we develop a sense of personality and our character and our identity and what makes us who we are. So that's another important kind of consideration. If you want to slow things down, maybe take the focus away from gender a little bit and just see if that broadens your child's perspective. I think that's really important. And I, you know, talked a little bit earlier about influences. This is part of the the same process. You know, if your kid is meeting with a therapist every week that talks constantly about gender it might benefit you just to kind of take a break from that type of therapy and maybe put the kid in piano lessons. Just like, let's do something a little bit different with this precious time. Yeah, drum lessons. Yeah, drum lessons. Okay, Stella, drum lessons only. <laughs> well, I meant something loud and rocky oh, as opposed to most yeah, of piano lessons are... <laughs> Very buttoned up and difficult. To, yeah, because yeah. there is a, a personality type and they're buttoned up and they often need to. You remember Dead Poet Society and he said to the kids they had to find their yop. These oh, kids yeah. need to find their yop. They should watch that film, by the way, or GD kids could benefit that these were buttoned up, over controlled kids who needed to find their yop. They need yeah. to find their rar and that the, the, it's, it's, it's very kind of controlled and centered in on gender and they need a lot more kind of ripping out. And yeah. that's why I said it wasn't just being random there. They need to, they need to find <laughs> their like, louder what about the drums. Yeah, that kind of ruckus, um, yeah. unboundaried kind Bring of them to the jungle. expression. Yeah, yeah, down to okay. the, you know, yeah, down to the Amazon, down to kind of wild and kind of whoa. This this mm-hmm. is this is not kind of controlled, and yeah, yeah it, w- it will be kind of. I just I feel a kind of a shake up from the the one view, the one life that they're having can be very powerful. But what do you think about the more complicated? Let's say when a child is on puberty blockers, mm. how would you approach that? Because that's really difficult. It is difficult and becoming um, more common. Yeah. Well, again, I think this is the parents really have to figure out how to frame their change of perspective. 
and they have to deliver that message with confidence and authority. And I think saying, and again, it's kind of like really hard when you're up against all of the other authority figures in the child's life. That's why I talk a lot about influences. Like first they have to figure out how do we put, put a little wedge between us and the gender clinic? Because if the, I mean, the, the stories out of gender clinics are really, they really push, they push the child down this pathway. So if you're a parent and you're trying to slow things down and there's a whole medical establishment that your kid meets with weekly trying to push in the other direction, good luck. I mean, it's just really hard. So I would say you have to kind of back out and broaden like who's an influence in your child's life. And then, you know, talking about the medical harms, the child is not going to get it. I think my big takeaway here is you may not get 100% buy-in with your child, but that's kind of what the parental authority is about. So to, to really sit down and strategize with your husband or wife or partner and say, okay, what are we going to do here? And how do we deliver this message? And it may be, you know, as we think more about this, we're very concerned about your brain development. You have a lot of growing up to do. You have not had any real relationships and we're all of these medications impact the, the function of your body and the growth of your reproductive system. I mean, all of these things your are bones. very experimental, your bones. And so yeah. there's just, um, I, I don't know if there's a magic way to deliver the message to your child where the child's going to say, great mom, I'm so glad you're making decisions for my health. I think it's going to be a bumpy road regardless but that's why, like you said earlier, Stella, just working on your own ability to stand in that authority and make a healthy decision for your child and follow through with it. And I mean, I always recommend the book, Hold On to Your Kids, because it talks about the importance of that relationship. And you, if you are going to do some sort of a slowing down or rolling back, consider the context, you know, are you doing this? And then your kid's going to go lock themselves in the room on social media for 10 hours? Or are you doing this and then your family's taking like a month trip to some amazing place where you're spending time with your kid, you're having exciting adventures together, you're doing interesting things. I mean, the context of how these changes are made makes a huge difference. So I would say think about everything as moving parts that all interconnect and it may be um, time to kind of make a couple of important changes that will help kind of curate a, a different type of environment that broadens your child's perspective while you are backing out of the medical piece. And so interventions can be a, a, a very interesting psychology to look into if you are thinking of rowing back on a medicalized situation where you're, you, you kind of you gather your, your wits about you, you go in with an awful lot of love and you kind of lay your boundaries and you say, this is how it's going to be. So it's, you're not saying the same thing as an intervention, but you're, you're coming in in a very similar way, which is we have noticed and you have your actual facts of what you've noticed. You've noticed how it's got more distressed, let's say, an escalation. And you can give one or two examples, but you don't labour them. and You move it on to this is the point 
and now and you keep you keep it within a certain kind of boundary situation so it's not a six hour conversation and you have your plan after just like you said Sasha that you have your plan to go away maybe the next day or you have your plan and we're going to go and see your aunt for three weeks now you know what I mean that it's it's actually really quite strategized this isn't a kind of a kind of a, a, a heart-rending you know plea from the heart that's kind of going nowhere it's, it's better than that it's more organized than that and it's because it's required this is really really difficult and it's the very same for parents who who's let's say whose children have medicalized on some level and they feel that they need to stop living a lie with their par- with their children that they, they, they can see, yes, you've medicalized. I know you've medicalized and I know I affirmed all the way, but I'm I'm desperately unhappy and I need some sort of authentic relationship with you here because now it's all fake. Everything is fake now. I'm supposed to be cheering your, your hair growth when I'm finding it very difficult. And it's like I've been written out of this script of your life. And that that's not good for anybody that, you know, that everybody's living a lie. And uh, the person involved doesn't know that everybody's living a lie or maybe they even do on some level. Mm -hmm. Another thing that comes up when it comes to the puberty blockers, of course, is that what about the medical management? How do you help a kid get off of puberty blockers when you have a clinic that's really pushing only in one direction? And of course, I can't speak for all the gender clinics. There may be gender clinics out there where a parent could come to them and say, actually, we really want to back off and allow the child's natural puberty to begin. And you might have physicians who are very supportive and helpful. But I've often seen it go in the other direction where the doctors kind of warn you against that strategy. So this is another challenge. And as we know, this whole world is changing very rapidly. The world of childhood transition is changing very rapidly. Um, as we talk about this, SOC 8 from WPATH is open for public comment. So there's a lot going on. Um, and I hope that what we start to see is endocrinologists and physicians who are taking patients who want to detransition. I've heard from lots of detransitioners who are much further along, of course, that they had a very hard time finding medical support to detransition. And so... Um, This is a difficult thing. And I think speaking of, you know, influence, I often tell parents, first, you need to find a medical provider who's on your team that will help you with this process because authority figures pushing for transition makes it very hard for parents to slow things down. So first is to kind of get a team of professionals, therapists, or doctors who are with you, who do see things in your perspective and support your decisions. Exactly. You've got it right. You've got to get a team. It's so hard. You've got to get a team around you and you've got to kind of slow it all down and decide what way you're going to go and make sure that the influencers are on your side as opposed to um, allowing people to detract from you. You know, anticipate the issues, anticipate the obstacles and then make sure that and that isn't easy. I know this is easier said than done, mm-hmm. but it's it's the only way you'll come through with with on some level, some level of sanity, because it's it's such a difficult ask of you. If I could give any advice to parents in this boat, my sense is that many of them have affirmed while flying by the seat of their pants. There was a scramble. Maybe there was a mental health crisis and like, uh, OK, we'll try this thing. And I think, Stella, what you and I are saying is you need to take a deep breath, get grounded in yourself, and come up with a strategy. 
Maybe after this podcast, you start doing some research and maybe you think about what are the next three years going to look like? What things are we going to do with our child? What influences are we going to mitigate? What healthy influences are we going to add in? Where are some places we can go? How can we spend some quality time together that's not about gender? And if you have a bit of a plan that will help you feel a lot more confident about the direction you're going. Perfect. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and our listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to make a financial contribution, you can donate on our website. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.